Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosophy, version 2.0, the One True Podcast. Matt, the only podcast to be married simultaneously to multiple other podcasts. Oh, we're a, a polygamous podcast. In violation of uh, the law of the land, but in keeping with the podcast God's law. Man's law is always secondary to that other thing. The Right, whatever that is. Yeah, we're going to talk about Mormon fundamentalism. Matt, I've been waiting for this podcast my entire life. I'm glad I could make you wait a little bit longer. This is a topic near and dear to my heart. As a matter of fact, it brought back a lot of memories while I was doing my research for it. Oh, really? Lots of terrible, deeply buried memories. Before we get into that, I I have a statement to make. Oh, all right. Now, when we recorded the abiogenesis... Abiogenesis, I believe it's pronounced. Yes. I made a joke about the Pope shoes, and that was recorded like a while back because we had to record it three or four times due to sheer incompetence on somebody's part. part. Not (laughs) (laughs) Not me. And then I heard that joke on The Daily Show, the same joke about the Pope getting his red shoes at Payless. All I'm saying here, Chuck, is just get me a writing credit. That's all I want. In the fuck? There's got to be podcast spies inside of Jon Stewart's Daily Show. That's right. There, somebody's listening to this show over there. Those assholes. I want my credit. I just want to sell out. Hey, Comedy Central, I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting. I just want the big check. Okay, maybe it was the obvious joke to make and anybody could have thought of it. But, you know, that's me. Obvious joke-making guy. <laughs> that's got to count for something. I can think of the obvious joke, damn it. Hey, how about some iTunes reviews? We haven't done that in a while iTunes, we need some music for iTunes reviews. Yeah, send me some music for iTunes reviews. <laughs> I think it's something upbeat. All right, uh, iTunes reviews. How about uh, Love It, Always Loved It, a five-star review by Radio S. Longhead. Chuck and his ego, great to address the both of you and your co-host. I like how my ego is now taking a second uh, personality of its own. Needs to be addressed separately. I I am the third co-host now. <laughs> you, there's your ego. There was the first guy, and now there's me. Matt is shaping up well. Penis talk and all. I want you guys to have Richard Carrier on sometime. You know that would be a good idea, Richard Carrier. Oh yeah, let's do it. I'd love to have Richard Carrier. Also, please play the original theme music. These Christian rock anthems nauseate me to no end. And my way to work. Oh oh no, he didn't. Well, let's see. <laughs> Whose fault was that? Whose idea was the Christian rock anthems? <laughs> um, I think that was an anonymous tip we received. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck, I'm a healthcare provider in emergency medicine. The butt abscesses are awaiting me. Oh, dear Lord. There is little worse than a butt abscess, Matt. But they yet they always seem to be waiting for you. Always. <laughs> what is a butt abscess? It's a pocket of pus, typically located right next to the anus. Ah, <laughs> I just threw up in my mouth a lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, I tried draining one. <laughs> the Lord has much to answer for when I am brought before his bar of judgment. Uh, but wait, how's that related to butt abscesses? <laughs> it was his fucking design. Oh, that's right. Next is still excellent. Still excellent, Matt. <laughs> oh. A five star review by Herodotus BCE. I think the new sidekick is pretty darn good. Leighton made me a little uncomfortable, but he was a funny guy, and he had a lot of good qualities. I hope he's doing well, as I suppose you do, too. Yes, I'm sure you do that. You do do that. You do suppose that. (laughs) I suppose. This episode will contain no errors on my part. And uh, the last, and possibly my favorite iTunes review, Matt. Oh, favorite. Let's hear it. Above the Normal, five-star review by Peter Murray. Very good podcast, period. We're above normal and we're very good. I like above, that. <laughs> above the normal. High praise from Peter Murray. Thank you. Would you like to get into the skunk dick sleeky face sphincter of the week? I would like to get into the fibrosis foreskin. Phimotic? Phimosis? <laughs> Phimo- <laughs> the adhered foreskin of the week. <laughs> That's right. Let's get into it. Excellent. My candidate is... Uh, since we're in, we're doing a Mormon theme show here. Even though it's fundamentalism, my my 
candidate is Mormon Apostle Boyd K. Packer, who, by the way, I think couldn't even stand for his uh, speech at General Conference. He had to sit in a wheelchair, so he probably does have a leaky sphincter. What is that guy's name again? Boyd K. Packer. The K stands for fudge. (laughs) (laughs) My guess is that this award is going to be redundant. I wanted to mention that... uh, he um, he's just an asshole. There's no way around it. He's, this guy's just an asshole. This is why you know even the Republicans now, after their uh, shellacking in the last election, now they're they're trying to kind of say, all right, let's get past this gay thing. Let's move on. It's been decided. We understand. Blah blah blah. Not so the Mormons. Packer says in his general conference address. Now this is twice a year, Matt. This is the most important fucking thing that God has to say to people. He only right. has twice a year to say it. Boyd K. Packer is the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So when Thomas Monson dies, uh, if he beats Boyd to the grave, Boyd is going to be the next prophet of the Mormon Church. Monson's still alive? He's <laughs> I think he's fucking like uh, beef jerky now. He's just going to live forever. I haven't seen anything less wrinkly than my ball sack like that guy in a while. <laughs> oh my God. Does your ball sack also resemble an iguana? <laughs> Only when it's angry. So this guy, this, uh, this is the most important thing you got to uh, tell these people. Direct line from Jesus straight through Boyd K. Packer. He says, The permissiveness afforded by the weakening of the laws of the land to tolerate legalized acts of immorality does not reduce the serious spiritual consequences that result from the violation of God's law of chastity. Oh, shit. That's code word for don't fuck a guy in his ass. Even though it's illegal now, even though it's legal, you're still going to have serious spiritual consequences. Are you sure we don't have a, uh, in Utah anyway, anti-sodomy laws still in the books? I'm sure we do. I'm sure we do. He goes on to say, tolerance is a virtue, but like all virtues, when exaggerated, it transforms itself into a vice. He's stealing from Aristotle there, you asshole. Not Jesus. He's stealing from Aristotle, the golden mean. Uh, we need to be careful of the tolerance trap so that we are not swallowed up in it. Yeah, watch out. <laughs> Points for the metaphor, Boyd K. Packer, while you're uh, condemning the gay lifestyle. Ah, uh, the Mormon church. They always like to lag behind the rest of society by a, by a certain amount. Usually usually it's like 12 to 27 years. It's however long it takes Boyd K. Packer to fucking die. And then the the you know relatively younger generation who are in their 80s instead of their fucking 90s will come up and be more tolerant. Well, they're the younger generation. So. Yeah. More open. Oh, my God. He knows what a flapper is, Chuck. Is <laughs> Who's your candidate for Leaky Sphincter of the Week? Oh, I've got two, and they are they are related to this uh, podcast topic in that they are fundamentalists, but not Mormon. They're a married couple, Herbert and Catherine Scheibel. Scheibel? Scheibel? Guess what they did? They killed their child. Well, well yeah. did the child do to deserve it? The child – now check this out. This kid, he's decided – he's eight months old. He decided to get diarrhea and have breathing problems. Well, that was his problem. He shouldn't have done that. <laughs> exactly. Dumb little bastard. Why? <laughs> um, God, that's mean. Let's cut that part out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you dumb little bastard. <laughs> if you're going to have the bad sense to be born into a religious fundamentalist fanatic family, don't fucking get diarrhea, you dumb little exactly. bastard. So he had problems for a week. Now, as you know, as you can imagine, um, they went straight to their doctor and they said, they said, hey, doc, help us out. Except that's exactly not what they did. They decided to pray for him because they believe in faith healing. They belong to a fundamentalist Christian church that believes in faith healing. Yeah. And he died. How did that work out for him? <laughs> <laughs> now, doesn't that tell you when God doesn't answer your prayer, maybe you should reconsider your beliefs? I mean, that, no, that's no. just a failed experiment. Right. But now one dead child through your faith healing beliefs is enough to make anybody the linky sphincter of the week. But this is not their first dead child, Chuck. Oh my God. This is their second dead child. In 2009, they had a toddler that um, that got sick, and they turned to prayer, and he died. Now, they were on probation for that death, 
when this kid died, now they're I don't even know what the fuck they're doing with them. They they should be locked up, hopefully. But um prosecutors are saying that they're still gonna wait on charges until they get the results of an autopsy. Right. Right. Because he might have been murdered, I suppose, by uh uh home invader instead of just died of dehydration. Right. It's possible. Maybe he died of cancer. They have they have they gotta make sure. You know when Christians say God always answers prayers, he just doesn't give you sometimes the answer that you want. This is evidence of that. The answer God gave you is stop fucking reproducing, you assholes. That's right. They already have seven other children anyway. Oh, for fuck's sake. Well, you know, when you have that many children, you get, you know, you got to break a few to make an omelet. <laughs> yeah. And guess where their other children are? In foster care. Where they should be, you know, or the yeah. wards of the state so they can actually survive to uh, adulthood. I'd like to read one more quote from them. Before I'm done with their uh, douchitude, it is a definite sin to trust in medical help and pills, and it is real faith to trust on the name of Jesus for healing. <laughs> Again, how did that trust work out for you? How's that going for you? That Jesus is oh. so kind, you know. He says in the New Testament, who among you whose son would ask him for bread would give him a stone? Jesus, I would, you fucker. Hey, could you help my kid? No. Hold on, hold on. I had to do some math. Uh, they're pulling a point seven seven, a seventy seven percent success rate. <laughs> that's not that's bad. Not bad. That's yeah, a C that's, plus. Right. That's uh, that's the incidence greater than chance. That's a greater than point zero five. What is that? Uh, in uh, statistics, not bad at all. God works seventy seven percent of the time. Seventy seven percent of the time, he works all the time. All right, I have one final skunked candidate. A surprise skunk to candidate. Oh. It is Warren Jeffs. <gasps> I've heard of this guy. All right, Matt. I got a um, an email from a listener named Ryan. that asked if I was interested in a uh, book of revelations by Warren Jeffs entitled Jesus Christ, Message to All Nations. It sounds good. I'm captivated by the title. It's like fucking 800 pages. Oh, now it sounds worse. Um, Matt, there are a couple of warnings... Since it's not just to America, it's to all nations. So here's a warning. Uh, warnings of the Lord to the nations of Denmark, the Netherlands, and those nations of, of their descent. Jesus is really concerned about um, sodomy. Section 4 of this revelation. Cause there to be overthrown in your nation and those peoples of your power who thus visit within your borders to partake of the sins of Sodom and of immorality and sorcery. <laughs> Oh, yeah. All laws that uphold these evils. Apparently, Jesus believes in magic. Let the city of uh, Amsterdam be warned of the desolation that awaits her, for she is a stench in the earth, corrupting the inhabitants in a continual degradation. Hey, I've been to Amsterdam. That is one sweet town. No. Four canals in Venice. Stench. Apparently, uh, Switzerland needs to overthrow their unjust and corrupt laws of euthanasia, wherein you allow suicide. Cause there to be a cleansing of your people, the immoral and evil ways. Cause any nation that practices the evil of murder to get gain to not have power to use your financial institutions. <laughs> the Lord I can't is very, he's calling out Switzerland. Very specific about this stuff. Um, I did notice they progressively get even crazier. Uh, there's one to Korea. Well, I'm going to say right now, they probably deserve it. The God of glory speaketh Jesus Christ, Jehovah, the beginning of the Lord... Wait, the beginning and the end, even he who was God before the earth was of existence, I speaketh strong warning to the Korea nation of allied to United States of America. North Korea is in alliance with China to bring United States into conflict in Korea, causing China to aid North Korea, weakening United States' ability to defend own land. It's like now he's speaking in, like, a telegraph uh, talk. <laughs> There's no indefinite articles. He doesn't like them. <laughs> he just learned how to speak English. <laughs> Your land danger. Me save you. Warn. Warning. <laughs> He's sending it by smoke signal. No South Korea. No matter what aggressive assault cometh, forbear. Retaliate not this attack. This was uh, May 31st, 2012. So about a year ago. They would then use greater bombing to overthrow South Korea. Then invade land of Japan. Thereafter, world will be in unholy conflict. Yes, world will be. Me agree. 
cleanse own peoples of sin, of murder, of unborn youth in own lands. Also overthrow immoral way of adultery, of money earning by immoral way living, of Sodom, of adultery way of selling women and youth to people for evil way, abuse way. Stop. Stop. <laughs> I can't even follow it. This is Jesus, man. This, these are the holy words of Jesus. Next week, we're going to call it the immoral way of adultery way. Abuse. Way. Instead of a skunk dick. I love how uh, Jesus is so concerned about killing fetuses, but not really concerned about Warren Jeffs fucking 14-year-old girls. That's okay. <laughs> no problem. He's got away with words, though. Yeah, don't you think? I think. Me think so. <laughs> uh, God. Thus saith the Lord unto the nation of the United States of America, I, the Lord... I'm soon to send the shaking of the earth in a place in thy land not known as a usual place of violent shaking unto the laws of many lives. <laughs> oh, God. Let it that is going to surprise you. <laughs> it's not. It's, you thought I was going to shake over here, but really I'm going to shake over here. What? <laughs> that place is not known for earthquakes. It must be a miracle. Oh, can you imagine the people standing around? This place, not usual place for shaking. Why should he be here? Maybe he only talks that way to Koreans. <laughs> Let it oh. be known, I, the Lord, have sent my message to government officials to free my servant Warren Jeffs, to cause my people to receive back their lands and houses, and you heed me not. Thus I shall cause a great destruction in the land of Illinois, to the loss of life and to your awakening, that when what? I, the Lord, speak, let my word be fulfilled, lest you become as a people only worthy to be swept off my land of Zion. Is that because of Nauvoo? Why Illinois? I love how he keeps threatening. That was in 2011, right? Where's the fucking earthquake? How come Illinois is still around? Two fucking years, Jesus! You gotta, you gotta look to the places where you won't expect it. All right. Without any further ado, what do you say we get into Mormon fundamentalism? I suppose you have forced my hand. I have no choice but to relent. Did you know that uh, when I was in high school, I was a Mormon fundamentalist? I... I did not know that, but I did know that your father, your father, was the counsel, the defense counsel for the uh, singers and the swaps, which is that's, that's right. A, that's a separate podcast right there. Yeah, that that's a separate podcast. Actually, what I might do is break this podcast uh, into two. I've done research all the way up until a Short Creek raid. And then from there on, it gets even more interesting because they start splitting off and they start killing each other and start going absolutely fucking crazier than they than they previously were. Like from 1953 on, probably do another podcast on that. Yeah. So you did not, you were not aware. I never liked to talk about religion, actually, with anybody when I was growing up. I was kind of yeah. embarrassed of the whole thing. I didn't, I didn't know you guys were fundamental. I think I probably just assumed you were Mormon for some reason or another, but that's because most of the people I knew were Mormon. Right. Um, well, allow me to educate you on Mormon fundamentalism. I see you're pronouncing it correctly now. <laughs> <laughs> so we can go all the way. Mormon fundamentalism, the first event probably is Joseph Smith, you know, when he's translating the Book of Mormon, gets to the point where he asks a question about the priesthood, and he wanders out into the woods, and, and by his report, Peter appears to him, Peter, James, and John, and they confer the priesthood onto Joseph Smith, right? Uh, a year later, the church is formed. Mormon fundamentalists will make um, a big deal about the fact that the priesthood was in existence for an entire year before the church was in existence. So those are two separate things. In... 1831, probably, as early as 1831, Joseph Smith takes his second wife. Uh, so the church will say he knew about uh, this revelation from God, in quotes, commanding him to marry more than one wife as early as 1831, although it wasn't actually written down until 1843. Uh, but he did reveal it to other people because there were other apostles in his close circle who were um, practicing it. And that uh, practice of plural marriage actually led directly to his murder in 1844. So uh, he, I believe, attempted to bring a few more people uh, into plural marriage, into his confidence, and they balked at it and they started making a printing press to expose the, the polygamy 
Joseph Smith, as mayor of Nauvoo, ordered the destruction of the printing press as a public nuisance, and uh, it was thrown out of the second-story window and destroyed. For that act, he was arrested and brought to Carthage, Illinois, uh, while he was there with Hiram and I think John Taylor, maybe one other person, uh, a mob descended upon the jail and uh, murdered Joseph and Hiram. John Taylor was uh, shot, I think, in the hip. Now, up until about a week ago, I was under the impression that John Taylor's watch, which is present in, I think, one of the Utah museums, and it looks like there's a little bullet hole there, saved his life, right? He said he was falling out the window and something pushed him back in. Upon further examination, Matt, that miracle has a more prosaic explanation. No. He got shot in the hip. He fell against the window seal, smashing the pocket watch, driving one of the gear mechanisms through the plate of the watch, causing a hole that was uh, taken to be a bullet hole, but it wasn't. It's from one of the gears. It did not save his life. It was not a miracle. But, you know, these are how miracle stories start, right? It vaguely <laughs> looks like a bullet hole. The, the glass in the pocket watch is smashed. It was, you know, in his hip pocket, so it was covering, you know, close to his chest. And apparently, upon further examination, not the case. So, in 18, I think that was in 1844. In 1847, Mormons begin their westward migration out of Illinois into uh, the Utah Territory, which at the time, I believe, was under control of Mexico, but the United States effectively had it. Um, so it wasn't long before it swapped and became a, an American territory. In 1850- The state of Deseret. The, yeah, they wanted, <laughs> wanted to do the state of Deseret. 1852, Brigham Young takes the secret practice of polygamy and proclaims it publicly as a doctrine of the church. Now, church leaders will tell you no more than maybe 2 or 3% of, of Mormons ever practice polygamy. That is... Uh, demonstrably untrue. Uh, it's somewhere between 20 and 30 percent is uh, at its peak uh, of people who were involved. And certainly nearly all of the higher-ups in the church were played. It was almost a, a requirement for higher office in the church. In 1854, I believe the Republican Party is formed, and one of their planks, one of their platform planks, is to rid the United States of the twin relics of barbarism, slavery and polygamy. And uh, in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected on that platform. Was polygamy that rampant? Rampant as slavery? Uh, no, <laughs> but it was repugnant to the Victorian morals of the uh. era, right? So you got you got these twin relics of barbarism, our barbaric past, slavery and polygamy. And uh, Brigham Young is just thumbing his nose at the rest of the nation because he's off in Utah, away from everybody. 1862, the first attempt by the United States to stamp out polygamy is the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act passed by Congress, signed into law by Abraham Lincoln. In the middle of the fucking Civil War, 1862. (laughs) I'd like to point out that's the name moral and not the word moral. M-O-R-R-I-L-L. It banned bigamy and limited territorial church and non-profit ownership to $50,000. So, you know, the Mormon church owns lots of land and property in uh, the Utah Territory. So, unfortunately, the act provided no funds to enforce it. (laughs) So, Lincoln specifically chose not to enforce it. So, it was kind of, he signed it, but he didn't want to enforce it because that might have provoked Brigham Young and all the Mormons to enter and choose the southern side for, for civil war. So specifically for Brigham Young's neutrality, he says not to enforce it. And he directs the people who are stationed, I think, in a fort 40 miles off of uh, Salt Lake not to enforce the act. I would have thought Lincoln just had something, some other more important things to do at the time. <laughs> like the Civil War. That may be true. History will have to decide on that one. In 1877, Brigham Young dies. The Quorum of the Twelve actually presides over the church for the next three years. John Taylor, in 1880, assumes the office of president. He was a president of the Quorum of the Twelve, right? So he assumes the office of president and prophet of the church in 1880. Uh, in 1882... Wait, sorry. Is there a direct uh, ascension for presidency in the Mormon church? Like, the top of the quorum just moves up? Or do they have, like, a uh, white smoke, black smoke, pope kind of thing going on? No, it's all about seniority. So whoever has been in the Quorum of the Twelve the longest becomes the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. When the president of the church dies, 
the president of the Quorum of the Twelve assumes the presidency. There's no selection process. There was a succession crisis because Joseph Smith didn't provide for any plans of succession when he died at the age of 39. And Brigham Young um, argued against the claims of Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith III, Joseph Smith's son, who Joseph Smith actually blessed that he would succeed him in the presidency of the church. But he was like 12 or something at the time. Did that cause a split? It did, yeah. Um, oh, it's just like the just like the Muslims with the yes, uh, exactly Shia and the Sunni. Listen, you fucking prophets, provide for succession, and it'll actually provide it'll actually cause splits in the fundamentalist church as well. The succession crises. Anyway, Joseph Smith the third and Emma Smith uh, spun off to form the reorganized LDS Church. They did not accept polygamy, uh, even though Emma knew that Joseph Smith had started it. She blamed it on Brigham Young. Uh, and that actually, they continue, the reorganized LDS Church, I think they're called the Church of Christ or the Community of Christ now. Their doctrine and covenants with their revelations continue like to this day. They, they keep receiving revelations from their prophet. Nice. Uh, all right, so 1880, John Taylor assumes the office of president. 1882 is when uh, the Morrill Act is amended by the Edmonds Act. This was signed by President Chester Arthur. Chester um, and what the fuck? I think that's the only thing Chester Arthur did in his uh, years as president. Do you remember that single what... other accomplishment by Chester Arthur? Oh, Chester A. Arthur. He's got so many. There's like mon- there's the Arthur Monument. There's the- <laughs> there's there's Chester Arthur Day. I believe this, this makes polygamy a felony. So this this criminalizes polygamy. It, it also because they knew it'd be very difficult to prove. Uh, that these guys were actually polygamists unless they were stupid enough to get a bunch of marriage licenses. So what it does is it makes unlawful cohabitation a misdemeanor, right? It's easier to prosecute. It revoked a polygamist's right to vote. It prohibited polygamists from holding public office and made them ineligible for jury service. Oh, so there's an upside. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Can I claim <laughs> to be a polygamist? Do you have a fucking jury duty? <laughs> As a result of this act, Matt, all elected offices in the Utah Territory were vacated. <laughs> One fell swoop, bam, everybody's out, and new elections were held. So, uh, and polygamists were disenfranchised. They couldn't vote. Oh. During this time, over 1,300 men were convicted and jailed for cohabitation. I bet at the time you couldn't find a single Mormon who either wasn't currently in jail or didn't know someone who was currently in jail for polygamy. Jail time... Those, I've got a picture I'm going to put on the website, a picture of all these Mormons, and including such uh, higher-ups in the church as George Q. Cannon, wearing the fucking old prison stripes, right? It was a badge oh. of honor. Yeah, you know, that's a friend of mine from high school actually now has that picture in his house of, like, of like one of his great-grandfathers. Yes. And it's, it's the stereotypical, yeah, the black and white stripes, and they're all, like, sitting around the yard posing for a photo yes. like they did that's in those the one. days. They're just chilling out in the yard with all their prison stripes on. Uh, it was you were considered um, less of a Mormon if you were a male and had not served jail time because you weren't doing your duty. You weren't being persecuted for justice. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Included in the people convicted were three future presidents of the church: Lorenzo Snow, who was jailed; Joseph F. Smith was fined; and Heber J. Grant was fined. Amazing, John Taylor who was current president of the church, wasn't ever prosecuted because they couldn't catch his ass. He he <laughs> gave this fiery, anti-government, you know, pro-religious freedom uh, sermon. I actually kind of have a sneaking uh, admiration for John Taylor. He's one of my favorite uh, prophets. He's, you know, essentially, fuck you, government. He remembered his treatment uh, in the Carthage jail where he almost got killed. He was placed under the protection of Illinois government, and he was not going to place himself in the protection of the government. He wasn't going to place himself in government hands ever again. So he stepped down from the podium and spent like the next five years going from house to house, evading the feds. Never was caught. The Mormon underground. Yeah. Yeah, spent the last five years of his life. He's in his fucking 80s, I think, running from the law. (laughs) Oh. Now, that's a mark of a good Mormon, is if you've been in jail... And you have a spider hole prepared for John Taylor, <laughs> should he come by. Oh, good Lord. Um, this brings us to 1886. This is the <sighs> sentinel event of fundamentalism. On September 27th, uh, a revelation was given to John Taylor 
directing him not to stop the practice of plural marriage. This is where I believe 99% of fundamentalists derive their priesthood authority, their lineage, uh, essentially from this revelation events that follow. So it's so important, I'm going to uh, read it to you in its entirety. The story, we'll get to it a little bit later, because the story wasn't actually publicly proclaimed until 1912. And the church denied the revelation ever existed, but we have copies of it written in John Taylor's hand. Uh, so here it is. My son, John, you have asked me concerning the new and everlasting wait, covenant. Wait. This is from God? This is Jesus talking. Oh, this is Jesus? Okay, great. Let's see how he changes his speech. It's not. Years. <laughs> from this to warn Jeff. <laughs> it's not written in Jesus' handwriting, though. It's written in John Taylor's. Uh, My son, John, you have asked me concerning the new and everlasting covenant, how far it is binding upon my people. Thus saith the Lord, all commandments that I give must be obeyed by those calling themselves by my name, unless they are revoked by me or by my authority. And how can I revoke an everlasting covenant? For I, the Lord, am everlasting, and my everlasting covenants cannot be abrogated nor done away with, but they stand forever. Have I not given my word in great plainness on this subject? Yet have not great numbers of my people been negligent in the observance of my law and the keeping of my commandments? And yet have I borne with them these many years, and this because of their weakness, because of the perilous times? And furthermore, it is more pleasing to me that men should use their free agency in regard to these matters. Nevertheless, I the Lord do not change, and my word and my covenants and my law do not. And as I have heretofore said by my servant Joseph, all those who would enter into my glory must and shall obey my law. And have I not commanded men, if they were Abraham's seed, and would enter into my glory, they must do the works of Abraham? I have not revoked this law, nor will I, for it is everlasting, and those who will enter into my glory must obey the conditions thereof. Even so, amen. Well, that's pretty black and white, Chuck. That is in 1886. So that's the revelation. And the the church right now, said they first said <laughs> it never existed. We don't have it in our vaults. I think the current apologetic was, well, yes, John Taylor had that revelation, but it's not official and binding because John Taylor never presented it to the church and they never voted on it because, you know, it has to be by common consent. That is one of the dumbest apologetics I've ever heard in my life. You can't vote on a revelation. (laughs) Either the revelation is true or it's not, right? It doesn't matter if you vote on it. And plus, how the fuck is he going to present it to the fucking church when he's running from the feds? Right. You can't show up at general conference and get arrested. I like how Jesus is kind of like um, a little pissed off there, you know, in the middle part. Yeah. You guys <laughs> Have are... I not given my word a great plainness? You dumb fucks. Jesus. You weak bastards. <laughs> let, me give you, let me give you some help to the church. Here's what the apologetic should be. It should be, of course Jesus hasn't revoked the law. It's an everlasting law. It's still there. He just revoked the practice of it. He's not requiring its adherence right now. And actually, we still adhere to it in the modern-day church, because if a a man gets married to a woman, she dies, he marries a second woman, hey, that's polygamy, because they're married eternally. Yeah. That's your apologetic, guys. Not this fucking canonization bullshit. That's a little free advice to the Mormons. And now you know. 1887, so... Mormon men are jailed by the hundreds, right? But the problem was... They'd go, and they'd be in jail for four months or six months or a year, and they'd get out, and they'd go back to cohabiting with their wives, and now the government's powerless to stop them because it's double jeopardy. <laughs> you can't charge them again for the same crime. So they're not uh, over in Congress happy with this. So in 1887, they passed the Edmonds-Tucker Act. Now, this, uh, this act disincorporated the LDS church. So they said, you're no longer allowed to be a corporation. You, I can't shit like this go on today. Oh, my <laughs> God. Can you imagine? <laughs> they wouldn't even fucking take their tax-exempt status. It provided for the forfeiture and seizure of all church assets over $50,000. At the time, the church held somewhere between 3 and $4 million worth of assets. These assets would be used to fund public schools in the territory. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Add insult Snap. to injury. It increased the penalties for polygamy to uh, up to five years of jail time and a fine of 500 to 800 bucks, which was really a lot of money back then. Yeah. Uh, required a person to swear an oath against polygamy in order to vote, <laughs> be a juror, <laughs> or be a public official. You had to swear an oath against polygamy. 
Can you choose which of those to swear an oath against for? Can I still leave out the injury? <laughs> I'd like to vote, but I'd like to not uh, be a juror. Annulled territorial laws allowing illegitimate children to inherit. Because all these polygamous people don't have marriage licenses, right? So those children in the eyes of the law are considered illegitimate. Territorial law provided for inheritance of <laughs> illegitimate children. And this Edmunds-Tucker Act wiped that off the books. It required civil marriage licenses. So they're trying, oh. they're trying to make it easier to prosecute. Civil unions? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> civil unions? <laughs> They said if you're going to fucking cohabit and fuck these people, you got to have marriage license, right? I don't know why, you know, why are they going after prosecution? <laughs> Just polygamy. <clears throat> if you're going to fuck a prostitute, you ought to be married to her. Anyway, uh, it did away with spousal legal protections, right? So it allowed prosecutors to bring wives up on the stand, and they didn't have any, the constitutional right that's usually guaranteed. They had to, uh, you know, testify against their husbands. It took away the women's right to vote. It disenfranchised women. Women were were granted the right to vote in 1870 by the territorial legislature. So the Utah Territory gives women the right to vote in 1870. The Edmunds-Tucker Act removes the women's right to vote. It replaced local judges with federally appointed judges. That was one of the problems, too. You'd have a Mormon polygamist as a judge. (laughs) You couldn't prosecute (laughs) shit. How can you? How can you take the women's right? When was uh? When Where in the When in the constitution? Good God, God like, man! I said I'd be no. Uh, it's if, either the nineteenth or the twentieth amendment. I think it was sometime in the late teens or early twenties when the women got the official right to vote across the United States. In the eighteen hundreds. Nineteen hundreds. Nineteen hundreds. Oh, Utah okay. territorial legislature was far ahead of their time. In 1870. And you know why they're doing it, Matt. They're doing it because you've got 50% men, 50% women. You can double your Mormon vote (laughs) if you give women the right to vote. Instant doubling of Mormon power. 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, 1920. There you go. Good God, we were backwards. How about that? Um, So it disenfranchised women. Eliminated the position of territorial superintendent of schools. Granted the Supreme Court of Utah the ability to appoint a commissioner of schools. It also prohibited the use of religious textbooks in public schools. By the way, that act remained on the books until it was uh, repealed in 1978. (laughs) So uh, women should not have voted in Utah. Well, I guess they got statehood in 1896. Yeah. Uh, John Taylor dies in 1887 of congestive heart failure uh, in Kaysville, Utah. Church is again run by uh, Corman Twelve. this time for about two years, until 1889, when in April, Wilford Woodruff was appointed to be church president. Why does it take them so long? Yeah, I know. They weren't in any hurry uh, to uh, appoint a prophet. Now they croak, and it's at the next general conference, essentially, that they do it. Yeah. It was a couple of years back then. In November of 1889, Wilford Woodruff receives a revelation. Because now he's being pressured. So originally, John Taylor's being pressured. Say, look, they're going after our property. Uh, sign, you know, sign a manifesto, or at least give some something our attorney something to work with in the court, some sort of concession. John Taylor wouldn't do it. So now they're pressuring Wilford Woodruff. He receives a revelation. He prays about it. And he says, uh, Thus saith the Lord to my servant Wilford, I, the Lord, have heard thy prayers and thy request, and will answer thee by the voice of my spirit. I, the Lord, hold the destiny of the courts in your midst, and the destiny of this nation, and all other nations of the earth, in mine own hands, and all that I have revealed and promised and decreed concerning the generation in which you live shall come to pass, and no power shall stay my hand. Let not my servants who are called to the presidency of my church deny my word or my law, which concerns the salvation of the children of men. Place not yourselves in jeopardy to your enemies by promise. Your enemies seek your destruction and the destruction of my people. If the saints will hearken unto my voice and the counsel of my servants, the wicked shall not prevail. Let my servants who officiate as your counselors before the courts make their pleadings as they are moved upon by the Holy Spirit without any further pledges from the priesthood, and they will be justified. So basically he's saying, don't sign away anything right now. It's going through the courts. I hold the destiny of the courts in the nation in the midst. I will inspire these attorneys that are fighting for you. Because you know, it went into effect in 1887. It's now two years later. They're uh, suing to stay this from going into effect. It, it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. So the, the revelation he gets in 1889... 
don't make any promises, don't make any pledges, don't make any compromises. 1890, May of 1890, the United States Supreme Court upholds the Edmonds-Tucker Act in a 5-4 to four decision. Directs the Utah District Attorney to seize $3 million in assets from the church. He actually seizes about 400000 <laughs> Loser. <laughs> so <laughs> he does take almost a half a million dollars worth of church property. And it's a lot so back then. Here we have, from 1831 to 1890, 60 fucking years of, I'm going to practice polygamy. It is responsible. You need to practice this for your salvation. It is necessary to enter the highest kingdom of the Lord. Do not make any compromises. Five months after the church has uh, their their disincorporated, their their money seized, another revelation comes forth giving up polygamy. <laughs> Five fucking months. <laughs> to whom it may concern, this is September of 1890, presented the October conference uh, in 1890. To whom it may concern, press dispatches having been sent for political purposes from Salt Lake City, which have been widely published to the effect that the Utah Commission in their recent report to the Secretary of the Interior alleged that plural marriages have been contracted in Utah since last June during the past year. Also that in public discourses, the leaders of the church have taught, encouraged, and urged the continuance of the practice of polygamy. I, therefore, as president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, do hereby, in the most solemn manner, declare that these charges are false. We are not teaching polygamy or plural marriage. So basically he says, all right, we haven't been teaching it. It was a total lie. Of course they're fucking teaching it. Of course they're solemnizing plural marriages up to this time. That's why they're fighting in court to continue. <clears throat> so he says... Since there is nothing in my teachings to the church or in those of my associates during the time specified which can be reasonably construed to inculcate or encourage polygamy, and when any elder of the church has used language which appeared to convey such teaching, he has been promptly reproved. And I now publicly declare that my advice to the Latter-day Saints is to refrain from contracting any marriage forbidden by the law of the land. So that was in 1890. So they started feeling the bite of losing their possessions? Sixty years that they're fighting against this, the first fucking dollar that's removed from the church, they fold. Bam. <laughs> Bam. No more polygamy. And now we see what is important. Three years later, church assets that were seized were returned to the church in 1893. In 1896, in January, January 4th, 1896, Utah becomes a 45th state. Huzzah! Now, there, uh, Wilfred Riddiff himself approved a couple of different plural marriages that were kind of in the works, like they were engaged at the time, after 1890, after the manifesto was issued. They also sent uh, colonies to Mexico and Canada because the, the initial idea was that it only, it only covered the United States. That's our only promise. We could still... So they established colonies in, in Mexico and Canada, even though it was illegal in Mexico and Canada to, to uh, practice polygamy. didn't matter. Um, and I think in 1897, according to D. Michael Quinn, Wilfred Woodruff himself officiated over a plural marriage ceiling uh, about like eight or nine miles offshore, so they were in international waters. Well, then that doesn't count before doesn't God count. or America. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't count. So uh, they were continued, and then uh, I believe Wilfred Woodruff's successor, Lorenzo Snow, did a few of them, and then uh, so did Joseph F. Smith. But when uh, Reed Smoot who was not a polygamist, he was a monogamist, was elected to the Senate, polygamy becomes a national issue again. This is a, he, was, he took the, the Senate floor in 1904, and bam, immediately they start hearings as to whether the church is still practicing polygamy in violation of the manifesto and their agreements. Well, who was Reed Smoot? Was he like a senator or from Utah? Reed Smoot, I believe, was either a quorum of the 70s or an apostle, of the church, but he was a monogamist. Um, so he was uh, elected to the United States Senate, and the United States Senate, the moral beacons that they are, refused to sit next to a polygamist because, you know. Oh, okay. I remember him as the co sponsor of the 1930 Smoot Holly Tariff Act. <laughs> that's, that's where I know him from. Well, he served in the Senate for like 30 years. They, they, these, there was like three years of hearings. Um, they actually pulled Joseph F. Smith onto the stand. They fucking subpoenaed the president of the church, the prophet of God, on the stand. Anyway, he issues, because of all this pressure, the second manifesto. So that, that was in 1904, and it reads, Inasmuch as there are numerous reports in circulation that plural marriages have been entered into, 
Contrary to the official declaration of President Woodruff of September 24, 1890, commonly called the Manifesto, which was issued by President Woodruff and adopted by the Church in its General Conference, October 6, uh, October 6, 1890, which forbade any marriages violative of the law of the land, I, Joseph F. Smith, President of the Church of the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, hereby affirm and declare that no such marriages have been solemnized with the sanction, consent, or knowledge of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I hereby announce that all such marriages are prohibited, and if any officer or member of the church shall assume to solemnize or enter into any such marriage, he will be deemed in transgression against the church, and will be liable to be dealt with according to the rules and regulations thereof, and excommunicated therefrom. So, in 1890, it was simply the advice of the president of the church, right? In 1904, it becomes an excommunicable offense to uh, solemnize plural marriage or, or enter into them. The church is so serious about this that they start excommunicating members almost immediately. In 1905, two apostles, John W. Taylor and Matthias Cowley, resign their positions as apostles. They resign from the Quorum of the Twelve. John W. Taylor is a son of the president of the church, John Taylor, right, who was on on the run and wouldn't give in. So he was very um, distraught, I suppose, and, and critical of the Quorum of the Twelve and the presidency. And he was actually excommunicated from the church in 1911. So Matthias Cowley, I think, was eventually restored uh, to, I think he was disfellowshipped, but uh, never excommunicated. And he never became an apostle, but uh, he was restored to um, priesthood, I guess, in the church. So in 1912, Lauren Woolley, son of John W. Woolley, makes his first public statement about John Taylor's 1886 revelation. So this 1912 pretty much is the official beginning of of Mormon fundamentalism as a separate and distinct movement from the mainstream LDS church. So let me read this to you. Read it. Because he makes another statement in 1929. So let me read this to you. This is his 1912 statement. In the latter part of September 1886, the exact day being not now known to me, President John Taylor was staying at the home of my father, John W. Woolley, in Centerville, Davis County, Utah. At the particular time herein referred to, President Taylor was in hiding, parentheses, on the underground. Charles H. Burrell. <laughs> on the down low. <laughs> Charles H. Burrell and I were the guardsmen on watch for the protection of the president. Two were usually selected each night, and they took turns standing guard to protect the president from trespass or approaching danger. Exceptional activity was exercised by the U.S. federal officers in their prosecutions of the Mormon people on account of their family relations in supposed violation of the federal laws. Soon after our watch began, Charles H. Burrell reclined on a pallet and went to sleep. President Taylor had entered the south room to retire for the night. There was no doorway entrance to the room occupied by President Taylor, except the entrance from the room occupied by the guardsmen. Soon after 9 o'clock, I heard the voice of another man engaged in conversation with President Taylor, and I observed that a very brilliant light was illuminating the room occupied by the President. I wakened Burrell and told him what I had heard and seen, and we both remained awake and on watch the balance of the night. The conversation was carried on all night between President Taylor and the visitor, and never discontinued until the day began to dawn, when it ceased and the light disappeared. We heard, oh my God! We heard the voices in conversation <laughs> while the conference continued, and we saw the light. My father came into the room where we were on watch, and was there when President Taylor came into the room that morning. As the president entered the room, he remarked, "I had a very pleasant conversation all night with the Prophet Joseph." <laughs> he just walks in and says that. <laughs> the, Everybody's eyebrows went up two inches. This guy is uh, fucking crazy. <laughs> At the time President Taylor entered the room, his countenance was very bright and could be seen for several hours after. Of course, he's shining with the light of godliness. After oh. observing that someone was in conversation with the president, I went out and examined all of the windows and found them fastened as usual. So, you know, um, Joseph Smith must have just beamed in like Star Trek. Right. Uh, maybe um, that guy, maybe Taylor, was just pregnant. Because pregnant people have a glow to them. <laughs> that is a distinct possibility. The brethren were considerably agitated about this time over the agitation about plural marriage, and some were insisting that the church issue some kind of edict to be used in Congress concerning the surrendering of plural marriage, and that if some policy were not adopted to relieve the strain the government would force the church to surrender. Much was said in their deliberations for and against some edict or manifesto that had been prepared, 
and at a meeting that afternoon, at which a number there were present and myself, I heard President Taylor say, Brethren, I will suffer my right hand to be cut off before I will sign such a document. I, Lawrence C. Woolley of Centerville, Utah, do hereby certify that I have carefully made and read the foregoing statement of facts, and the same is true to the best of my knowledge. Dated the 6th day of October, 1912. So, basically what he's saying is that they all got up this manifesto, and they wanted John Taylor to sign it. He had a chat with Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith said, don't sign it, and I would rather have my right hand cut off before I sign this document. And that's his masturbation hand. So that's a... <laughs> you know he's serious. He's serious. He'd be left with the stranger for the rest of his life. <laughs> Matter of fact, I'm not convinced that he wasn't just masturbating all night long. That's where the glow came from. The afterglow. <laughs> 1914, John W. Woolley, Lauren's father, was excommunicated from the church for performing plural marriages. Uh, 1918, Joseph F. Smith dies. He's replaced by Heber J. Grant. By the way, Matt, the fundamentalists fucking hate Heber J. Grant. They hate his guts. Why? He's got uh, a town named after him. I think <laughs> I think he organized or um, helped a bunch of law enforcement officials raid uh, some polygamous compounds during the 20s and the 30s. That's the charges laid at his feet, anyway. In 1924, Lauren C. Woolley is excommunicated, but he's not excommunicated for performing plural marriages or entering into plural marriages. He's excommunicated for spreading pernicious falsehoods. <laughs> Specifically, that Heber J. Grant, his church president, and Apostle James E. Talmadge had taken plural wives, quote, in the recent past. Now, if you can believe it, the church must have been fairly small at this time, because Heber J. Grant, in 1931 repudiated this claim and named him. So in, in General Conference in 1931, Heber J. Grant says, One man by the name of Lawrence C. Woolley said that Anthony W. Ivins and Heber J. Grant went to Los Angeles, that he followed them, that they went into a hotel, and that Anthony W. Ivins married a plural wife to Heber J. Grant. Anthony W. Ivins and Heber J. Grant were never in a hotel together in Los Angeles. <laughs> That would be a pernicious falsehood. Yeah. Heber J. Grant has never suggested to any human being during his entire administration as president of the church that anybody should ever enter into plural marriage. On the contrary, every man or woman who has ever opened his or her mouth to him on this subject, he is taught to the contrary. That is so unintentionally dirty. <laughs> <laughs> I was never alone in a hotel room with Anthony W. Ivins. And every man or woman who has been before me with their mouth open, <laughs> I, I, I have taught them. Oh, good Lord. Can you imagine someone spreading rumors about uh, Thomas S. Monson and then him calling him out by name at the fucking general conference? That is awesome. I'd like to see that. Awesome. 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 Awesome.